Hi, TYT. It's Katie Halper. I'm the host of The Katie Halper Show, a podcast that you can find on iTunes, where you can rate and review us, SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, and at Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. And we hope that you will join us there so you can get access to bonus content, including extended interviews, including the extended interview with the guest I'm about to speak to, who is a very, very, very good doctor, single-payer advocate, writer, real renaissance man, Adam Gaffney. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thanks for joining us. Really excited to talk to you. You uh, are really prolific in your writing. You write for places like The Guardian, The LA Times, The Washington Post, Chest, which is a great pulmonary publication. One of the best. One of the best. Uh, And you also have a proposal that was published in the British Medical Journal which is Healing and Ailing Pharmaceutical System, Prescription for Reform for the U.S. and Canada. So can you tell us about that prescription? Also, is that an actual prescription? Because you can prescribe. So can I bring this in to a pharmacy and get It would be great if we could just prescribe this and then suddenly revolutionize the American pharmaceutical system. I think it's going to take a little more work than that. All right. Well, a girl can dream, <laughs> a patient can dream. Um, yeah, so this is, I should emphasize, comes from a working group of both U.S. and Canadian physicians, advocates, and scholars. Um, and you know, basically, we take a step back and say, what would be this pharmaceutical system that we would have, that we would make in this country if we could, if we could imagine a progressive image of a uh, vision for for such a system. So we don't only look at drug prices, which everyone knows is are astronomical and we need to bring down. We also look at things like drug research and development, regulation, the way we provide them um, to the public. Um, and so we really sort of go through the whole system and try to come up with a comprehensive reform proposal to make uh, for better drugs and higher quality drugs and less expensive drugs. And your proposal has seven areas for reform. Access, affordability, preclinical development and patent protection, clinical testing, approval reform, post-marketing surveillance, promotion. Do you know what that spells out, by the way? I, I have figured out the acronym. <laughs> APCAP. Just want you to know, A-A-P-C-A-P-P. It doesn't always work out that you can say them. There's Mm -hmm. often like consonants. That was intentional. Yeah, I know. Uh, So tell us about these seven areas of reform. Right. So, I mean, you know, you you probably heard about Trump had a drug reform proposal that came out uh, recently. Um, This is in the news. The problem of drug prices, everyone knows we need to lower them. Um, every people, the American public is suffering in general from, two, from, from very high drug prices. Um, but as I mentioned, this proposal goes beyond um, simply bringing down drug prices. So let's talk about a couple of the things we talk about. So first, drug prices. You know, we spend twice as much as other high-income nations on prescription drugs. Um, so the first thing to do is bring down drug prices, and that's not really brain surgery. We know how to do that. And you would know. I'm not a brain surgeon. I'm not a brain surgeon. But have you rotated through surgery? As a medical student. Um, I'd hope long time so, ago. not as a high schooler <laughs> or something, as a middle schooler, yeah. So the drug pricing, how do other high-income nations do it? You have 
um, a central payer, the government, negotiate directly with drug firms. Um, we estimate that could save um, more than $150 billion a year. Um, but you actually need more than that to bring down drug prices. Um, if there's only one best drug that does something and saves a life, um, then the owner of that patent can always walk away from the negotiating table, right? right. They have all the, the monopoly. Monopoly. So you need the government to be able to reform the patent system, to also be able to do something called compulsory licensing, which is to green light generic production of a patented drug before the patent expires when it's necessary for, for medical necessity. Donald Trump came out with the drug price plan. Are you suggesting that it wasn't thorough or um, sufficient to address drug prices? Why are you so skeptical? You're right. Um, I shouldn't assume I'm making an <laughs> ass out of you and me and Donald Trump. So if you remember from the campaign, Trump ran sort of uh, talked tough about, about coming down in pharma. Um, you know, he said he was going to bring down drug prices. He said that pharmaceutical companies are getting away with murder. Um, yeah, and he also said, woke Trump, everyone. That's woke Trump example, infinity. He also said he wasn't going to let anyone die on the street which made me think he would lose the Republican uh, right. primary, but he didn't. But he didn't. And, um, and in fact, I think it's you know, probably helped him win some of this economic populism. It's a separate issue. Right. But the point is, is that he said he was going to allow Medicare to negotiate with drug, with drug companies to bring down prices. This plan that came out uh, does none of that. Uh, he walked completely away from drug negotiations. Um, you know, but he's of, a great negotiator. But he's a great negotiator. And the despite that, you know, the day that the um, his proposal came out, drug stocks soared. So clearly, he's making people happy. You know, one of the big things he talks about is um, helping drug companies push up prices in other countries. The idea here is that you know other countries are freeloading off of our drug research and development, so people can die over there, so they don't die here. Right, and it also it's based on a ridiculous right. notion of capitalism. Uh, do you think that because drug companies are making more profits in Europe, they're going to suddenly decide right. out of the kindness of their heart to reduce drug prices here? No. So anyway, his he's really counting on the nationalism card and, the xenophobia, the, national card, yes. and the xenophobia card. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, there's a line in his proposal where it's like put American patients first or something like that. So, so he's hoping to sort of use that um, nationalism. So no, his drug proposal won't really do anything substantially to help people. Ours, in contrast, will. Um, so, uh, so, for, not, so just to clarify, yours is not identical. It is not identical. It is, in fact, quite different, uh, diametrically opposed in, in many respects. So the first way you bring down drug prices is to use what works, right? So how do other com countries pr have drug prices that are often about half of ours? Well, you negotiate on the government level, the federal level, um, and we do estimate you could bring down drug prices in half for brand name drugs. That would probably save more than $150 billion a year. Um, but you need to do a lot more than that, right? Because negotiation sounds good, but let's say one company makes one life-saving cancer drug. Um, they may not like the price you're offering and they can walk away. And then does that mean people in your country don't actually have access to that drug because it's unaffordable? No, so you need additional tools. Uh, in fact, the government should sometimes be able to do something called compulsory licensing, where it basically greenlights generic production of a medication before the patent expires uh, in cases of med medical necessity. Um, so we have a host of reforms like that that could bring down drug prices. Um, I should say that you also need a system to make sure people actually can access them. And this is where single payer comes in. Um, even if you bring down drug prices, for many working class people, it's still going to be too expensive, right? Um, so you need a system of universal coverage, obviously. We still have 28 million people uninsured. And you need full coverage of drugs without co-pays and deductibles. So that's the access stuff. 
Adam is also the president-elect of Physicians for National Health Program. And this is a PNHP proposal? Yes, PNHP encouraged the formation of a working group of uh, US and Canadian doctors, physicians, advocates um, that got together to, to, to produce this document. And it's been endorsed by PNHP as well as um, an organization called Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Um, Was there any confusion with the about and about? Did that cause any? It came up, but we were able to settle it. It didn't cause a rift in the in the working group. Okay, group. good. You overcame that difference. We overcame those differences. What a great what a great omen. How auspicious. And what are the other areas that this brings up? Uh, the seven areas for reform. Can you talk about the um, preclinical development and patent production protection? Did you talk about that one? I did already? not, and that's actually my favorite part. Okay, good. I had a feeling. So there was a uh, report from CNBC uh, recently. Um, talking about this, I guess it was a leaked report um, from an analyst at Goldman Sachs, who was basically, the report was titled something like, um, uh, you know, is curing diseases a sustainable business model? Um, and basically it went through the sort of downsides of coming up with a medicine that, that actually cured a disease. Um, People will live. That well, from a, from, a, from a financial perspective. So the larger point that I'm making is that it's really problematic if your research and development agenda is being dictated only by profits. Um, now, what we've actually seen uh, is that companies have often put all of their um, research and development uh, dollars into developing more so-called Me Too drugs, drugs that do the same thing as an existing drug, um, just a new brand, new oh. patent, and then you can promote it, advertise it, sell it, and make a blockbuster. Like mascara. I'm not even kidding. They keep developing more and more mascaras. Yes. They've already run out of it. You have like vibrating mascaras. There's you have so like many. cat eye. You have fan eye. Yeah. Right. Or but like that. Doritos. I feel like has a new cool version. ranch, cooler ranch. Cooler Where ranch. does it stop? That's an example of a Me Too drug in Got Dorito it. form. Got it. Um, yeah. It doesn't really add much value. Um, and in the case of Doritos, it's pretty much harmless. Um, or harmful. They're not very nutritious. Right, Adam. but the cooler ranch versus the cool ranch. Right, it's a harmless difference. Yeah, it's a harmless it. tweak. Uh, but those sorts of tweaks, when it comes to drugs, are problematic because the new cooler ranch uh, version is going to be patented and much more expensive. So, in any event, what we need to do is first change approval um, requirements. If I'm going to develop a new drug, it should have to be better than existing drugs to to get approved. Right, it shouldn't just do the exact same thing. Um, but also. You know, we already spend a huge amount of this country, money in this country uh, funding scientists um, to come up with medical knowledge that drug companies then use to develop new drugs, right? So the, the National Institutes of Health, we actually already provide publicly, public funding for, for the development of basically every drug. Now drug companies then do this sort of final parts of testing um, and development to make those drugs into products, but there's no reason we couldn't do the whole thing through public uh, mechanisms as well. So we envision a parallel track um, of public drug development in which we develop drugs through the NIH outside of the patent system. And the new drugs that were developed um, would be generic from day one. And that could both improve health because you're focusing on the benefits from a health perspective as opposed to the profits, and could also save a lot of money in the long term. So that's the public drug development concept. And other people have talked about this, and we rely on a lot of other ideas that are out there. Uh, the economist Dean Baker has done some work on this. So um, a public drug development bureau. You know, it's kind of like Jonas Salk, um, you know, when polio he, vaccine. the polio vaccine, when he was asked, um, you know, who owns the patent for this? And he says the people, you know, could you patent the sun? Um, and the idea here is that, you know, science, there's no reason why scientists couldn't be motivated right. by a desire just to make a better world. To heal. To heal. Right? You don't need to think that you're going to become a billionaire 
uh, in order to be motivated to, to do good work. So that's the a classic, a typical argument, right, is that you need these ridiculous markups and prices because without that profit, you won't have uh, innovation, that that's the motor and the motive behind people doing research. Uh, so your response to that is? What about all the scientists who are not working with drug companies, who are, who are doing good work, who are innovating, who are discovering things? Um, they're not expecting to become millionaires. Um, that's sort of from a motivation perspective. Now, in terms of the drug company's argument that drug prices need to be so high, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do this research, that's not true. They don't price their drugs at a level to recoup their losses. And we know that for so many reasons. I mean, there are drugs that have been around, look at the Martin Shkreli situation, right? That drug that he gouged the price out of was around for like decades and decades and decades. So it wasn't like he was recouping research and development costs. Right. Um, this was a drug developed um, forever ago. Uh, what about the EpiPen? You know, right. Myelin Pharmaceuticals jacked up the price of EpiPens. Epinephrine was developed as a medicine um, Again, I think like 100 years ago. Um, insulin, right? So, you know, um, uh, Trump's HHS secretary used to be a executive at Eli Lilly, and Eli Lilly jacked up the prices of their insulins year after year after year. Insulin was developed um, almost a century ago in Canada, um, and actually some of the scientists who first invented it didn't even want it to be patented. They've now sort of tweaked it and made some modified versions of it, but they're they're jacking up a price of a medicine that's been around for a very long time. So this isn't about recouping research and development costs. This is about charging whatever the market can bear. Right. So it seems like this is a, a fairly easy moral case to make, right? We should not be allowing people to um, turn death into a profit industry. Maybe that sounds kind of macabre, but that really is what it is, right? It's denying people health care, denying people life-saving resources out of pure greed. Is there, um, how long has it been around, that, that model? Well, the, it's changed a lot, right? So actually, um, in 1979 or 1980, there was something called the Bay-Dole Act that was passed that basically allowed um, uh, um, academic researchers who had always been developing drugs to basically patent and sell their work product to industry. Um, and that sort of began the sort of modern biomedical era in a way of monetizing you know, all of the research that was coming out of, out of um, research labs that were publicly funded, publicly funded. So you could now start, you basically start monetizing publicly funded research. It isn't, doesn't need to be this way. Um, I think you know, many people in the industry would argue this is how it is, there is no other way, there is no other alternative. Um, but we know that's not true, and there's, be, there's definitely um, examples throughout history of people developing drugs and making discoveries without, again, having the prospect of becoming enormously rich. And also, this seems like something the majority of Americans would support, given that the majority of people uh, are not in the pharmaceutical industry, right? It seems mm -hmm. like it's kind of odd. I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes, you know, when you remember what is really happening, it is kind of outrageous. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's outrage everywhere. I mean, everybody you speak to is facing issues with drug costs. Um, in polling, people say this, is a, this should be a, a big issue for anybody in the government. And not only that, I mean, drug companies are very unpopular in right. polls. So I would agree with you. I think this is sort of a home run politically um, for people, to, for politicians to embrace. Uh, and run with. And I think, again, you know, that's why Trump said all the things he said on the campaign trail right. about going after Big Pharma. Uh, 
once again, he walked away from it entirely once he actually had power. Um, but that does speak to the fact that it, you're not going to get elected saying, I'm going to be a big friend of Big Pharma. Right, right. This idea that you'll sometimes hear, which is, oh, why are you even working on single payer, let alone uh, drug prices when we have Donald Trump in office? Clearly, this won't pass under Trump. What's your response to that? Um, well, should we wait until we have a great progressive elected and then suddenly try to figure out what it is we want to do? The way you make change is by envisioning uh, what you want before you're able to make it happen. Um, so that when you have progressives in power, you have a plan that people have already called us behind. So right. also, I mean, it's a terrible argument. You know, the best, you know, not to use a sports metaphor, but the best defense being a good offense is somewhat true when it comes to policy. Right. You want to offer an alternative. Uh, you don't want to just say no. You want to say yes, what the Republicans are doing is very harmful. Repealing Obamacare would be harmful. but. If you don't say acknowledge that there's flaws in the status quo, then people are going to gravitate to other bad ideas. Right, that's true. There's you leave a vacuum. You leave a vacuum. Right. So um, there's also the issue of shifting the Overton window, making mm -hmm. something acceptable or unacceptable. We've seen that since Sanders, especially uh, the it, it's no longer politically viable or, or strategic for Democrats to not a lot of them at least, to not embrace single-payer, Medicare for all. Yeah. Uh, can you think of any other precedents in, in history, um, either with healthcare or not with healthcare, where the legislation, the proposed legislation, encourages a kind of moral shift which is then ready for when there is more of a political possibility of achieving something? So I, I, I think there are many situations where the, the discourse changes and suddenly it becomes something that legislators have to do. I, mean, I think certainly the civil rights era. Right. Would be Thank an you for saying what I was trying to say much more eloquently. And oh no, no, it's no, a, no, no, yeah, because I same same thing. I was just re rephrasing it. So yeah, I, mean, I think that's an example of of uh, of that sort right. of thing. I mean, but it's so a people very good would have point. said you're never going to pass this civil rights legislation. What are you doing? This is a pipe dream. And yeah. then it enters the discourse. Everything that's worth right. doing, every big fundamental change in human history was considered right. impossible until right. it was actually yeah. done. Same-sex marriage and is a recent example. Everything. I mean, quality. saying this is unrealistic is a ridiculous right. argument. But you're right about like the sort of Overton window. I mean, how many senators supported Sanders' single-payer bill two years ago? Zero. Really? Shame. Shame on you, Senate. How many last year? Sixteen. That's a huge switch in one yeah. year. Yeah. Um, wow. And the House bill went from, um, you know, when there was representatives who supported the House bill, uh, which is now um, um, Keith Ellison's bill. Now there's a majority of the House Democrats that support it. So that is an enormous shift that's happened over the last year and a half. If we reproduce that one more year, two more years moving forward, you're, we're going we're gonna to be able to have enough support on our side. Uh, but of course, what made them shift? It wasn't suddenly that representatives, you know, read you know, our articles right. and we're like, well, this is a great idea. It's the grassroots movement. It's the changing discourse. It's the movement of the overturned window. It's um, the fact that they have to, right, to get right. to win primaries. Yes, it's not a moral awakening for, for the politicians, at least. Mm -hmm. um, what about this argument that you see, which is that pushing single payer, pushing Medicare for all makes Obamacare more vulnerable? Have you seen this? I have. Um, would you care to respond to that? Um, it's ridiculous. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where by asking for more, you, you, um, 
you know, you potentially put at risk right. the gains you've already made. Yeah, um, it would be like saying the fight for 15 undermines the current minimum wage because right. you're asking for Which more. people would laugh at you if right. you said that. Um, no, you, you move over to the window. If anything, it, make, it makes other reforms seem more reasonable. Exactly, yeah. Right? So I think if more anything... More moderate. More moderate. I think if anything, the, the Medicare for All movement has actually... Uh, the, first of all, the protests against... Um, the Obamacare repeal reform. Everybody who was in favor of Medicare for All was in favor of those movements as well. And many people I know, you know, went to those protests and 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 and, and fought against the Obamacare repeal law, Obamacare repeal. So we're on the same side about not moving backwards. Um, but there's no, I, I can't think of a logical reason why asking to move forward would actually endanger the status quo. Actually, I think the biggest threat to this to, to Obamacare would be not acknowledging the flaws of the status quo, not acknowledging that people are still suffering despite the law being fully implemented, and then and then being surprised when people don't like it, mm, right? right? So um, the best way to secure the gains of the present is by envisioning a future where everyone everyone has coverage. There's another argument that um, is, is made occasionally, which is that kind of uh, universal programs, something like Medicare for All, are programs that don't, uh, that are at odds with racial justice or um, women's rights. Can you talk about the relationship between gender and healthcare and race and healthcare? Absolutely. Um, well, I, I certainly disagree. Um, I think that the fight for universal health care has always been part of the vision of racial justice and of, and of gender equity. Um, single payer is also, not surprisingly, disproportionately supported uh, by people of color. If you look at the opinion polls, um, black Americans and Latino Americans support single payer at much higher rates than, than white Americans. Um, and for a good reason, right? Uninsurance rates higher among um, uh, women of uh, people of color um, and unmet medical needs are higher um, so I think that if we create single-payer there will still be problems when when, when. when thank you um, there will still be issues of racial this is not going to solve racial right. health injustice there's still going to be racial health inequities um, there's still going to be prejudiced providers um, there's still going to be biases that we need to all work through, but also change on a structural level. But there are huge structural inequities in race um, that, that can be fixed, not all the way, but in large part by a single payer system. And we need to do it. And, that's, and, that's, um, and nothing short of that is going to make a difference. Uh, you know, and there's so many things with the status quo that, 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 that disadvantage um, um, racial minorities in this country. You know, even very good programs like Medicaid still ultimately are separate programs for lower income people. And those sorts of separate programs can do a good job, but they don't do the same thing as having a level playing field for everybody. Right. Uh, and then in terms of uh, gender equity, um, you know, we think that um, abortion and reproductive health care, generally speaking, should be part of the benefits of this sort of program. Um, I would n note that the Sanders bill from last year explicitly includes a provision that would repeal the Hyde Amendment and would, um, and would allow that to happen. So we, and the Hyde Amendment is, can you explain? What uh, absolutely. It basically prevents federal funds from being used for abortion for Wait, the most part. I thought that Bernie Sanders' plan was actually single payer for straight white men and funding um, for anti-choice organizations. I, I jest, but you actually see people making the point. People actually have said, maybe this is just on Twitter, but people actually say that Bernie Sanders doesn't mention 
abortion, that the Sanders Medicare for All plan doesn't mention abortion. His latest bill explicitly does. It's not in the House bill. Uh, we'd like to see that, but it's, it is in his bill. Um, and, you know, I don't think that those criticisms are really fair uh, for a number of reasons. Well, for the, for the they're reasons, not true. They're lying. <laughs> right. But also, I mean, you know, this, I don't think that the, 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 the other side, um, the sort of more incremental approaches, get the same kinds of criticism. Um, right. The Center for American Progress put out its health care proposal, um, Medicare Extra for All. And there's no, it doesn't actually have that. So it would, it, um, the, the, those prohibitions would actually apply and, 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 and under the Hyde Amendment, under their plan. So Sanders' plan is better on abortion than Medicare Extra. I would definitely say yes. Okay. Are you guys listening? Neera Tandon, I'm talking to you. Adam's not. Adam Gaffney is not. That's not an official communication from Adam Gaffney or PNHP. Um, can you talk about your experience as a doctor, what made you become a single-payer advocate? Yes, I would say, I'm. let's see, um, as far back as I can remember, I've been um, a universal health care advocate. I don't know when I heard the term single-payer, but it was, it was um, no later than when I was a freshman in college. Um, the universal health care systems of Europe always made sense to me. Um, the injustice of people being uh, in, left in the streets, uh, unable to access care, always just struck me as profoundly immoral. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to work in a healthcare system where you could treat everyone the same regardless of their economic means. And what I've seen in my own practice uh, is tremendous harms of people being excluded uh, because of their economic status. So I think that universal healthcare system, single payer, single tier, everyone included, um, is a basic foundational component of a just and reasonable society. Um, can you talk about uh, the sneaky language? Uh, you and I have talked about this before. The sneaky language used by some people in terms of um, universal coverage and the way that people kind of use that to um, get out of the kind of universal coverage that single payer is, is uh, guaranteeing? Yes. So I think what you're seeing now is a victory in the level of the discourse for universal health care, right? And that wasn't maybe the case 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, everyone agrees that, that, or we've won, progressives have won the battle that, and even that everyone should be covered. And even Republicans sort of ha embrace that rhetorically. You know, they talk about universal access and they use these sneaky rhetorical terms to sort of imply that they're also in favor of everyone being covered. Um, but what's happened now is that there's been a sort of proliferation of sub-single-payer, sub-incremental um, sort of, sort of um, proposals that use the language of universal coverage but wouldn't really create the kind of single-tier system that we need to have healthcare justice. Um, so people do use the phrase universal coverage, but it means something very different. Maybe it means people, everyone having some insurance plan, but people having bare bones plans. Um, it's, you know, there's, there's been, a, as I said, there's a Medicare Extra for All plan that came out. There's, um, the Urban Institute recently came out with their own incremental approaches. And everyone says, I'm in favor of universal coverage. But then you have to ask, um, is everyone automatically included? Does everyone have the same level of access? Are you getting rid of a copays and deductibles? Um, and all of those other plans fall short from those from those perspectives. Can you talk about the Medicare Extra and Urban Institute's proposals? So, Medi so Medicare Extra, and, and I wrote an article about this in The Guardian. So I, I will say that this represents a big shift um, 
uh, for them in that it's, it, it's a step to the left compared to previous proposals. Um, they would enroll people automatically who are not currently enrolled. Um, but it would, it would create this Medicare extra program that would basically cover people who were not otherwise covered through other programs. Um, so it would expand coverage, but it would do a lot, it, it would leave a lot undone. Um, first of all, it would keep in place, people would still have co-payments and deductibles, things that keep you from accessing care. Two, it would keep the private insurance companies involved in the, in the, in the system. Um, and in fact, these Medicare extra plans could also be sold by private insurers. Um, we know that private insurers add so much waste to the system, um, hundreds of billions of dollars of excess spending on administration and profits they suck out of the system. Um, so the plan would be, you know, certainly better than what we have now, but it would not create true universal health care uh, in the way we envision it. It would keep the wasteful private insurers in the, in, the, in the country. It wouldn't generate the kind of savings that we need to really bring down um, to, to, to be able to cover everyone fully uh, and comprehensively. So it would leave a lot undone. And it would still keep these different tiers and pockets of, of, of levels of access. How did you unveil this proposal? It was a pretty exciting affair. Mm-hmm. A lot of pomp and circumstance. Yes. Yeah, so it was exciting. We had a press conference in D.C. at the National Press Club. Um, and a number of organizations have, have endorsed or participated in, in that event. So National Nurses United, um, which, um, as you know, is the biggest nursing union in the country, uh, represents 150,000 nurses, um, has endorsed the proposal, um, and they, represent, they, they represent, came, came to the, to the, to the launch. Um, so the representative, executive director of Social Security Works was there. Uh, Keith Ellison was um, supposed to be there. He had, a, um, he had to be on the floor of the House, but he did join us by video message. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, Representative Ellison. It was a great video. And um, we had Marsha Angel, who also joined by video message. Marsha is the former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine and a member of the working group. Uh, Public Citizen was also represented by Sid Wolf. Um, and so... Um, so you have the spectrum from an angel to a wolf. Exactly, and everything in between. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yes, we're, we were very excited to get this out there, uh, and we think that, again, it's just something that is going to be able to be implemented tomorrow. I'd like to see that happen. It seems unlikely. Right. Uh, but we, vi we view this as a blueprint, um, as setting the agenda on pharmaceuticals, um, because just negotiating drug prices isn't enough. We need to fix the whole system. What about the, what is this post-marketing surveillance? Are you part of the deep state? What's going on here, Adam? <laughs> that, you know, that, that may not be, be the most exciting part of the proposal, but essentially the idea here is that, you know, just because a drug gets approved doesn't mean that it's actually safe and you need to watch drugs carefully once they hit the market. And we have, drug companies don't do a very good job of doing that. And the FDA hasn't done a very good job of holding their feet to the fire to monitor these drugs once they're out there. So again, it's one component of this, of this sort of comprehensive proposal to not just bring down drug prices, but to make sure they're safe and effective. Um, and watching drugs once they're out in the market is an important step, part of that. And clinical testing? So um, as, as we spoke about earlier, having a public drug development bureau uh, institute would be a great idea and in line with that you know vision of Jonas Salk of a people owning a patent um, but another issue is how do you test the drugs in clinical trials so clinical trials are when you have a drug and you've maybe use it in small groups of people but then you need to know does this actually work this is basically human experiments in large numbers of people um, and as things stand now for the most part drug companies fund 
and run clinical trials. Conflict of interest? Conflict of interest. And that has been manifested by um, a slew of problems in industry-run trials, all the kinds of you know, things you might think um, with methodology, with reporting, with selective reporting, and so on and so forth. So in addition to having the NIH publicly develop some drugs, we think a separate uh, uh, division within the NIH should also run clinical trials and fund clinical trials. Um, so again, this would be a really progressive step. This would be both developing and ha having a parallel track of public drug development and testing. And what, uh, can you tell any kind of cautionary tales about the way this happens when you have the pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceutical companies running the clinical testing? Mm -hmm. Sure, there's, 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 I mean, there's so many examples. Um, so, uh, for instance, now, and, and I should say that, you know, the overall evidence supports the use of antidepressants for depression, unquestionably, but there was a report in the New England Journal of Medicine some years ago where they found out that actually the drug companies hadn't, um, had basically selectively published um, the positive trials and not the negative trials. Um, and you see there's been other instances of that. Um, other things that we see very frequently are drug companies um, testing a new drug, not against the best other available drug that, that already exists, but against the placebo or against some inferior drug that no one really uses anymore. So the rates having, so the comparisons are off because you're comparing it. make it look it. good, right? right? So if you were gonna, if you didn't care about, if you, if you were totally impartial, you would want to say, all right, there's a new drug here, let me try that against the best current existing therapy, and does it beat it? Because if it doesn't beat it, then why run the trial right. to begin with? Cooler ranch. Cola Ranch versus Cool Ranch. Right, exactly. It's not worth investing billions of dollars into a trial showing the superiority of Cola Ranch. Right. I, I, I would, I mean, I know that's maybe a controversial opinion. I know, it's a hot, it's a hot take. <laughs> um, and what about um, promotion? So tens of billions of dollars is spent by the industry in promoting drugs. Overall marketing costs um, exceed research and development costs for the industry. So what are we getting for that money? We're getting- Pens. Pens, doctors are getting the pens. My dad's a doctor, so I'm, I You've guess seen I'm these on pens. Part, I got access to the gravy train. And you know, these little things actually, studies show these little gifts do affect prescribing, yeah. which is sort of not surprising, because why would they be doing it? Right, exactly, um, out of the kindness of their own hearts. Right, yeah. even meals, and now a lot of that has been cut down, but also direct-to-consumer advertising. The ads you see um, on TV, you know, pushing these n new drugs, right? So that is a lot of money. And studies have shown that these sorts of advertising, advertisements are, are misleading, um, the waste of money. Um, actually, in most countries in the world, direct consumer advertising is just illegal. Hmm. It's only the US, and for reasons I'm not really quite sure, New Zealand. I knew you were gonna say that, I swear, yeah. I knew it. Maybe because I've read it, but they're so quirky, New Zealand. It, I, I, I don't have an explanation. They gotta have, be on the map. It, they're basically, they're competing with Australia. No one knows about New Zealand. They so they, they legalize they direct quirky. consumer yeah. advertising yeah, exactly. to differentiate yeah. themselves yeah, exactly. from Australia. They need to. And that's they a hot take. Moment. Yeah, that's a really hot take. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, now I would be in favor of just banning direct consumer advertising, which is what we probably should do. But that may, given what the Supreme Court has been saying, that there was a good chance they'd find that unconstitutional. So we outline in our proposal other things you could do to start um, to push back. You know. Why is it, ta their advertising budgets are tax deductible. Well, you get rid of that, that's easy enough. There's other things you can do. And what about, there's so many kind of talking points against single payer, um, you know, stories about ca Canadians dying while they're waiting in line. What do you think the biggest myths are that are out there and what's your response to them? 
So the Canadians flocking to the United States is a myth. That Canadian refugees? Canadian medical refugees. Um, it just doesn't, isn't supported by actual evidence. Um, Canadian healthcare system, like every healthcare system, is not perfect, but it works very well. Um, and you have to ask the question again: Why would somebody who can get a free, very you know high-quality heart surgery in Canada pay like a million dollars to get it done here? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that's a myth. Um, there's a lot of myths. Uh, the waiting time, you know, the these going to be you know these incredible waiting times is also a myth. The um, if you if, if you don't have enough doctors, then there'll be waiting times. If you f want to shorten waiting times and have more surgeries performed, then train more orthopedic surgeons. The financing system is not what generates the line. It's that if you don't, if you don't have enough orthopedic surgeons, then you'll have, it'll be a long wait for you to hit replacement. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's single payer or not single payer. Comparative studies of the U.S. healthcare system um, compared to other high-income nations show we do worse for the most part. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund, which is a health policy think tank, um, when they do comparisons of sort of high-income nations, the U.S. is typically at the bottom of the list in terms of quality. Um, and then you can just look at basic metrics like life expectancy and infant mortality and all those things that really matter and we don't do so hot in those uh, metrics either. I didn't know until an interview I did with you that people even made the ridiculous claim that there isn't a link between insurance and um, light, what is it, like health? What's, mm -hmm. what's the, like Ross? Yeah, like Ross, does, does, it, does it save lives? Yeah, does having, does having insurance save lives? Mm -hmm. Hot take, yes or no? Right. Um, the, that argument has been made, um, and I think it's been settled by the literature. And actually my mentors um, and public health scholars, David Himmelstein and Sydney Woolhandler, uh, did a review of all the evidence last year in the Annals of Eternal Medicine and found that, yeah, put all the evidence together, it, it, it does save lives. You know, it's one of these things where it's not easy to prove experimentally unless you were going to do some totally unethical, you know, experiment right. where you gave some people insurance, didn't give other people insurance, and watched them for 40 years. Yeah. Um, then you're not going to be able to like scientifically prove it in the same right. way that you can prove that a new drug saves lives. Right. Uh, but the evidence supports it. Um, and then you just have to ask, well, then you know, why are the same people who are saying this like why do they have insurance? Um, they think right. it's so yeah. important. They t yeah. Um, what about has anyone tried to kind of strip um, politicians, con uh, members of Congress, senators of their health care until they support it? I haven't heard of that. I mean, it's. Might be sort of a gimmicky kind of um, political campaign. Not sure how we'd implement it, but Not I sure like the idea. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea if yeah. if govern if if government healthcare is so bad and insufficient, why are mm -hmm. these people on it? Right. Um, I mean, I think that I mean, I think you're bringing up a good point, which is sort of the hypocrisy, um, which is pretty rampant, um, and. I think that ultimately, though, what's going to force you know the government to what's going to force politicians to change their mind is going to be a massive grassroots right. movement, which is growing now. And it seems like people. I mean, there's so many stories. Um, can you share some of the more disturbing stories about people not getting prescriptions fully filled? Um, just examples of how people actually are dying because of a lack of coverage. Mm -hmm. Any anecdotes? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to talk about my own my personal observations um, in terms of patients I've had. HIPAA. There you go. I mean, you you can do it with just if you de-identify, de but but I usually don't. But what I will say is that um, uh, every I think doctor has seen 
harm done from people sure. not being able to fill prescriptions. You know, people winding up in the hospital from in, who have need insulin uh, because they uh, can't afford or, or don't, aren't insured and don't fill their ins aren't able to get insulin. You can wind up in the hospital with a life-threatening complication called diabetic ketoacidosis that we see a lot at the ICU where I work. Uh, so things like that happen all the time. And uh, it doesn't always mean someone dies, but it does mean that their health is impaired or they have a life-threatening condition and are able to be saved, but it could have been a lot worse. Um, and you know, there have been studies that have shown that when you expand healthcare coverage, I mean, saving lives isn't the only benefit of being insured. People go bankrupt when they're not insured. They go bankrupt when they are insured and they have bad insurance mm. too. Um, you know, people have to make terrible choices between healthcare and whether they're going to pay their rent and other sort of um, uh, basics of life. One thing you see in the prescription drug perspective is people skipping dosages of medications, yeah. using, you know, I've heard people taking inhalers that are supposed to be used twice a day, only once a day, uh, in order to make it last longer. I mean, that's pretty heinous to sort of imagine, you know, people with serious chronic lung diseases um, having to ration out their own and drugs to try to make them last longer because the copay is 200 bucks. Right. And what about non-adherence? You do some um, studies, you cite mm -hmm. some studies in this proposal about non-adherence. So that's, I mean, and that's a really critical part, I think, of, of, of what we propose. It's very different than, than what's out there. So you're probably used to copays, deductibles. These apply to medicines. And what happens when you force people to pay for medicine in the time of use? Well, if you have a lot of money, it may not make any difference. If you don't, um, then people will leave prescriptions at the pharmacy, not even fill them. Um, they might take less than they need. And that means when you, if you have a chronic condition and you don't take your heart failure medication or whatever, um, you could suffer serious sort of harm from that. Um, we think that drugs should be available without copays because the only point in a copay is to deter people from getting their medicine. And why would we be trying to do that? Wales, Northern Ireland, and uh, Scotland have no copays for any drugs, and they spend a lot less on drugs than we do. We can do the same thing here. So it's not. It is affordable. It's very affordable. Yeah. Uh, I think you talk to some people in the United States and you propose having healthcare be free of point of use, and they think you have like ten heads, and they're like, right. "How would that be financially doable?" And it is done in many places. The proposal you guys came out with rests on six principles. Medical needs, not financial means, should determine access to medications. Drugs must be affordable to society. Drug development should be geared toward real innovation that maximizes population health. The human right to health must take precedence over intellectual property rights, patents. The safety and effectiveness of medications must be independently and rigorously evaluated. Comprehensive and unbiased information on drugs should be available to prescribers and patients. Do you stand by all those still? Every one of them. Great. Just, just checking. Well, thank you so much, Adam Gaffney, Dr. Adam Gaffney, pulmonologist, critical care doctor, single-payer advocate, prolific writer. You can follow him on Twitter at A.W. Gaffney. Thanks so much for watching The Young Turks. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. You can hear The Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM, WBAI.org.